If you want to turn in your Bibles uh, or on your phone app or whatever you use to get into God's Word, uh, to Matthew chapter 22, uh, we're going to be continuing in our Kingdom Come series. We've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in uh, chapter 22 uh, today. And man, I am excited. I am fired up because it is wedding season. I mean, who's here with me? You guys excited about wedding season? It's like my favorite time of the year. The flowers, the, uh, the arrangements, the plannings. It's uh, so exciting. And um, I'm being mildly sarcastic in that, right? But, um, but if we're honest, weddings, um, I mean, probably like the 10 or 12 best parties I've ever been to in my life have all been weddings. I'm not, uh, I'm not high society. I don't many, uh, go to many black tie affairs or galas or balls. And so, uh, man, the best meals that I've had, you know, the best, the best entertainment, it's, it's all been at weddings, uh, these, these incredible venues. And um, when you go to a wedding, it's really uh, at their best. They're really um, a pretty cool picture of our relationship with God, if you think about it, because um, you go to a wedding uh, not based on your merits. You don't earn your way there. People don't post like, hey, we're getting married in six months, so get your rankings up, right? Like, make sure you're liking every, every post that I put on Facebook, right? Um, you're invited because of relationship. Uh, sometimes it's birth relationship. Sometimes it's friend relationship. But, but you, were, you were invited into the wedding not based on what you've done, but based on a relationship that you have with the bride and the groom. And so you're invited in to a party that, the, that you're given out of grace and, uh, and sometimes mercy, depending on what kind of relationship you've had with them, right? And, uh, and they treat you generously, and they, and they give you rich and, and luxurious food. And uh, I can't tell you how many times Trina and I have been at weddings where we're like in the cocktail hour and we're eating, and I'm like, there's no meal. Like, this has got to be it. This is the whole thing. There's not a sit-down meal. And then sure enough, they take you and they sit you down, and you're like, what? What? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it can be a really incredible experience at its best, right? But then we also have, if, if some of us are honest, there's, how many of you have ever gotten a, uh, something in the mail and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and you open up, oh, it's a wedding invitation. Oh, man. How far away is it? Are we going to have to get a hotel? Oh, uh, man, am I still close? Right? Like, uh, anybody ever, like, tried to bail out on a wedding invitation? You get it? Now, if you think about it objectively, right? They're saying, hey, I'm throwing a party. I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to entertain you. Will you come? And, and many of us are kind of like, eh, yeah, maybe, right? Because we're lacking relationship, right? Most of the time it's because we lack a relationship with the people that are getting married. And so the greatest joy of our heart is not going to be to see that person unified in marriage with the one that they love. There's something deficient in that, right? Or else we would be excited about going to the wedding. And so um, today we're going to look at uh, a parable about a wedding that Jesus tells. And it's, um, anytime Jesus, uh, parables are just stories that, that Jesus told. It was one of his teaching techniques. He would tell stories, and, and part of it was to illuminate things, and part of it was to kind of hide things. Um, but they always kind of were a, an objective way of kind of a, illuminating a central truth. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you've got this real character flaw and deficiency and you really need to work on it, um, and you'll respond and say, well, hey, but I'm justified, and you'll rationalize and you'll try and argue out of it. But if they take you and objectively show you, hey, look at this person over here. Look what they did. Wasn't that wrong? You can objectively look at it and say, yeah, that was wrong. And then he turns and says, well, that's what you're doing, right? That's, that's how Jesus works it, right? And so um, the parable was told he was in this, this lengthy uh, discourse with the religious leaders of the day, uh, the Pharisees who claimed to know God, claimed to have a relationship with him, uh, but the evidence of their lives was telling a different story. 
And, uh, and he was kind of in this back and forth where they're coming and saying, essentially, hey, who gave you the authority to teach and to do these miracles and to say all these things? And Jesus is kind of flipping it back on them and saying, well, who gave you the authority? And so he's telling this parable to the Pharisees, but he's also telling this parable to us. It's included in the Bible because God wants us to get the benefit of hearing this story and seeing where some of these deficiencies might lie in, in us so that we can repent of them, that we can lay them at the foot of the cross and allow Jesus to, to take them away from us. And so what I want to do is I just want to read this story to you. It's not a story I'd advise reading to your kids at bedtime, right? It's not, it's not a happy, although come to think of it, a lot of the stories like Hansel and Gretel and stuff are not the kind of stories that you really should be reading to your kid at bedtime. Um, so maybe it is a good bedtime story, I'm not sure. But I want to read it to you, and I just want to, I want you to take a moment after I get done reading, just what's your initial gut reaction to this story? What, what's, what's the one thing, one or two things that like stand out to you? You're like, wow, I, I kind of struggle with that. What is that for you? Okay, so, so here we are, Matthew 22, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Take a moment and, and just ponder. What, what is it that, that jumps out to you in this story? What is it, what is it that, that really stands out? You're like, wow, that's tough to hear. You got it? <laughs> you thinking about it? Um, man, there's so many attributes of God that are on display in this passage that there's something there to both encourage and offend pretty much every person, right? And so uh, if, if I'm going to do general, and I know each one of us is a blend of these things, but if I'm going to generally characterize uh, the kind of person that is really hyped about the love of God, the grace of Jesus, there's a lot of things they're going to like in here, Right? First of all, he compares the kingdom of, of heaven to a party, right? You can picture, like, buttoned up like Puritans, like, turning over in their grave, like, what? <laughs> right? But Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a party where there's going to be awesome, luxurious food. There's going to be wine. There's going to be, there's going to be dancing. There's going to be entertainment. It's going to be a celebration. That's what the kingdom of heaven, and people are like, yeah, that's great. And, uh, and, and by the end of the parable, he extends the invitation to everyone, and he goes out into the highways and just says, everybody come to my party. Everybody, everybody come in. And we're like, yeah, I like that, right? Um, but, 
but people that, that tend towards emphasizing God's love and grace are going to be like, but yeah, but then there's that part where he went and like destroyed people and burnt a city. Man, that was kind of, that was tough. And then one guy wasn't wearing the right outfit and he, and he bound him up hands and feet and threw him out of the party. Man, that doesn't sound like the God of love and, and mercy that I, man, I'm not sure if Jesus got that right, right? On the other hand, uh, on the far end of the extreme, right, is, are those that really emphasize the holiness and the righteousness and the rightful wrath and judgment of God, right? And they would say, first of all, I like that the guest list was exclusive in the beginning, right? <laughs> I liked it was by invitation only, and there was only certain people that were invited to it. And uh, man, when those people uh, said, no, I'm glad that God went and brought retribution on them. They, they deserved that, and especially for killing his servants. I mean, what else could he do? He, so I, you're cheering that. Um, but when you get to the part where it says he invited any, everyone in, both good and bad, you're like, ugh, I don't know about that. <laughs> that seems a little too open. And why was he so patient? Why did he keep inviting them? I mean, I don't know about you guys. If I invite somebody and they say, no, I'm not coming, I don't offer a second invitation, right? I'm like, fine, you go do what you want to do. I'm, I'm going to party extra just to put it in your face, right? My heart's on display here too, right? It may, may not be good. That's reality. Um, so every one of us should be challenged by something in this, right? There should be, there should be some things. And, and what you found most challenging, what leapt out to you, um, is probably an indication of, of kind of the, the limited way in which you see our limitless God. Uh, God is unlimited and he is vast. He's, he's simple in the, in, the, in the sense that he is unchanging. He is completely faithful and reliable. Um, he's, not, he's not confusing uh, intentionally. But he's also very complex. There's a richness to his character. He's not a two-dimensional figure, right? There's a complexity and a richness and a vastness to God that all of us need to continually try and get closer to and try and understand. And so, um, so I've been walking with a group here at the church. We've been doing a Bible study through the book of Jonah. And um, man, it's been a great study. And um, I see a lot of parallels between the book of Jonah and the Bible and this parable that Jesus told in that it's a story where it kind of breaks neatly into two parts. There's the first group of people that he brought the message to, their rejection and that response, and then the second group. Um, and Jonah is kind of structured in that same way. There's, uh, there's two commands given to Jonah. One time he disobeys, the second time he obeys. Um, but both of them also end in a way that kind of invites the, the listener into the story. It doesn't tie the story up neatly, but instead it, it, it invites you in and it invites you uh, to see yourself in the story. And so that's how I want to break it down for us this morning. I want to look at part one, part two, and, I, and then I want to look at the surprise ending, right? So, so part one unfolds in verses one through seven. And so let's go back through that and look at it a little bit. And we have this historical lens to look through. When Jesus was talking to these people, they didn't know what was coming. Uh, but we can look at it through the lens of history and see very specifically that Jesus is prophesying about events that were going to happen in the very near future. Uh, this was around AD 30 to 33 when Jesus was talking. And by AD 70, uh, Rome would come in, they would destroy Jerusalem, they would destroy and burn the temple. Uh, God's judgment would essentially come against the nation of Israel for their rejection of Jesus. And we can look at it knowing that that is part of what Jesus is foreshadowing here uh, in the opening part of this parable. And so let's look at the, the beginning part again. It says, um, the kingdom, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Cle clearly, you probably figured out God the Father is the king. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is his son. 
Uh, the wedding feast is, is symbolic of the, of the union of the Son, the, the awaited one, the Messiah, with the community of faith, uh, the church as we know it now, those people that have put their faith in God and that have been made into a right relationship with him through faith, the same faith that led Abraham to say yes to God when he called him out um, through uh, all the people who he says, uh, it says that, that we're children of Abraham if, we're, if we have the same faith that Abraham had. And so uh, the, the, the community of faith that is trusting in God for salvation, trusting in God for their righteousness, is being unified with Jesus in this incredible wedding feast, right? And, um, and so uh, with his son, and then the servants that he sends out to call those that were invited, the nation of Israel was continually invited uh, by the prophets who were the servants that were sent out going back uh, all the way into the Old Testament, all the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, right? Um, all the way up, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and continually they would invite Israel to repent and turn back to God. And over and over again, Israel at best just didn't listen to him. At worst, uh, rounded them up and killed them. And it continued in all the way to John the Baptist, who was kind of the last in line of the Old Testament prophets. And as we know, John the Baptist ended up being beheaded uh, for, for calling Herod to account and for proclaiming Jesus. Um, and uh, and so, uh, so the, the servants that were sent out were rejected. They were treated shamefully, and they were killed. And then God says, um, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, um, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. If someone else is preparing dinner, and they say, hey, it's time for dinner, you're usually like, all right, yeah, let me finish this text, or, or man, it's almost halftime. Like, hang on just a couple seconds or whatever. But if you're the one who made dinner, and you timed everything perfectly to get it just right, you expect immediate response, and you want everybody at the table right away, right? Uh, we did this a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple Sundays ago. You remember we had that random snowstorm in the afternoon, and, um, and we were running around. My, my daughter had a musical performance that afternoon. We were kind of running crazy, and, and so I took it upon myself to get dinner, and so I rolled up my sleeves, and I went to Giant, and I bought a rotisserie chicken, and I got some microwavable vegetables, Right, I put those in the microwave for four and a half minutes, got that out, did some, uh, some nice uh, croissants in the oven, right, pulled those out. I, um, I took the lid off the rotisserie chicken, and you know you've got about 90 seconds from the time you pop that lid until it's ice cold, right? And so, um, so Trina's family was in town. They're visiting, having a good conversation. I'm like, oh, hey, guys, all right, everything's ready. You just want to grab a plate and go ahead and grab the food? And I kind of stand back and, like, await the praises, right? And... Uh, <laughs> And they're in the middle of a conversation. So they're just continuing, like, finishing, like, normal human beings, like, finishing their conversation. And I, after about 30 seconds, I was, like, I was like, hey, can somebody grab a plate? Like, you know, they're, like, freaked out like a, like a weirdo, right? And, uh, but I wanted them to come eat the food that I had lovingly prepared for them over the past 25 minutes, right? It was a labor of love, so. But I, that tiny little bit of uh, misdirected angst <laughs> and everything. But, but I get a sense of God saying, like, man, I laid the table out for you. It's all here. I just want you to come and eat. And yet they rejected his invitation. It doesn't say that they could not come. It says that they would not come. The way was open, but they chose rebellion and disobedience. Why? Well, it's kind of two categories, right? Um, one was just that some were too busy with the cares of this world. They had to go see to their farm. They had to go see to their business, right? And essentially what they were saying is like, hey, I know that, that you've prepared food for me, but, but I've got a farm over here, so I can really, I can prepare my own food. If I, if I go over here and put my attention here, 
I don't need the meal that you're offering to me, God. I, I'm able to make my own, right? It says, hey, over here, you, you want to give me, uh, uh, you want to treat me lavishly, and you want to bless me with gifts, but, but if I work hard at my business, I won't need you to give me gifts. I can get my own gifts, right? And so, so any of this concern with the world is really, um, essentially, it's self-righteousness. It's a pursuit of, hey, God, I don't need what, what you're giving because I could just get it for myself. It goes all the way back to the garden, right, where, where Satan said, hey, eat this fruit, and you'll be just like God. Essentially, you won't need God anymore. Now, we don't think about that when, when the concerns of the world fill up our heart, right? No, we think, hey, you know, we're just we're living in a material world, and, and we are material <laughs> men and women. I was having this conversation with Emma <laughs> the other week. I was like, in the 90s, it was, it was Madonna. Today, it's Ariana Grande, but it's the same thing, right? I want it. I got it, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's like a horrible message, right? Don't go listen to it. <laughs> but the point is the same, right? Like, our hearts gravitate towards getting for ourselves. We celebrate our ability to get what we want for ourselves, and we say, God, I don't really need what you're offering. Thanks, but no thanks. And it's a rejection of God, and it puts them categorically in the same place as those who were angry and vicious and evil and enemies of God and took his servants and shamefully treated them and beat them and killed them. You, you know, one seems way worse in our eyes, but here's the reality. Both are outside of the wedding, Right? Sin separates us from God, whether it's acceptable sin in our culture, whether it's celebrated sin, busyness, worldliness, um, or whether it's, it's taboo sins like, like killing someone that everybody generally recognizes as wrong, right? But, but either way, they're separated from God because of these choices that they're making. And so is there something that God's trying to communicate to you about this, right? Is there a... Is your eyes set on, on, on your farm, your business, your preoccupation, whatever that might be, your reputation, your ability to provide for yourself, your future, your security, rather than setting your eyes on him? Because if you, you are, then, then you might miss the invitation. And he, and he wants better than that for you. And so um, God patiently, persistently, time and time again, reached out to, to the nation of Israel, ultimately sent his very son, and, and ultimately he was rejected. And so then in AD 70, uh, the Roman Empire came in, uh, the army came in, they sieged Jerusalem, um, the people started starving. Um, I, I did a Google search, and I, and I read a bunch of the stories. I can't share any of them with you in church. They're that horrible, right? It's, it's not the kind of stuff that you can talk about uh, just directly. But, man, if, uh, if you want to see the seriousness of it, you can go online and, and read Josephus. And uh, he was a historian, and he, and he accounted what happened in Jerusalem. And then, I mean, cannibalism, like horrible, horrible things. And then ultimately, in this sort of demonic rage, the Roman Empire came in. Uh, they had, uh, were under orders not to burn the temple down, but they burnt the temple down. Uh, they killed men, women, children, didn't matter. Piles of bodies in the street, right? Uh, the, they, the judgment came, and that's why Jesus, when he was walking to Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, all oh, that you would have responded to my invitation. I, I, I reached out to you so many times. Why wouldn't you listen? And I, and I want to just mention here, just so it's, it's, it's abundantly clear, this is, not, um, this is not all of Israel. This is not all Jewish people, right? All of Jesus' original followers were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. 
there were those within the Jewish faith, within the nation of Israel, who responded to God, who were obedient, who listened, but this was the judgment that came upon those that rejected him. And, uh, and it's a stern warning. And it's kind of hard for us to swallow, right? But uh, one of the quotes that, that, uh, that Tim Keller shares in this, uh, in this book about Jonah, the prodigal prophet, um, helps to kind of tie it together, right? He says this. He says, many in the modern West are not troubled by God's mercy. You weren't troubled when it said, everybody, good and bad, come on into the party, right? That didn't bother you too much, right, for the most part. But um, because they don't accept the idea of a God who judges. They want a God of love, but a God who does not get angry when evil destroys the creation he loves is ultimately not a loving God at all. If you love someone, you must and will get angry if something threatens to destroy him or her. As some have pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression or injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. I mean, it's the storyline of every kind of hero action movie that we ever watch, right? Liam Neeson's daughter gets stolen, <laughs> she gets taken, and he's like, I have a very particular set of skills, right? And we're like, yeah, get him, right? And it's, uh, because our hearts cry out for justice. Maybe not in a Liam Neeson kind of way, but, but we want justice. Now, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? So I'm not encouraging you to enact justice and, and, and claim to be right, but, but justice is a natural outflow of God's love. God will act with justice to protect and care for those that he, that he loves. You guys, uh, each of you would, would, would act with justice towards someone that offended or hurt or damaged a family member that you love. You would seek justice. And God's justice is perfect. And God's justice is patient, right? He, he invites over and over again. He offers the chance to turn and repent. But ultimately, God is a just God. Well, the second part uh, of the parable then takes us forward from the time of Jesus into today. We await the, the ending of the second half of the parable, right? It says in verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Uh, this main roads, this idea of like the forks in the road, the pathways, is basically like just go out uh, to the extents of civilization. As Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and invite people in to the wedding. Now, this, this phrase, bad and good, we've got to look at this uh, through a biblical framework, right? We know biblically that there's no one who is good in and of themselves. We're all born with a stain of sin upon us, that there's no one who's righteous, not one that obeys God's law perfectly. So from, from that standpoint, there are no good people, right? Uh, there's nobody's, man, that guy, he's righteous. He needs to be in the wedding, right? So we understand that biblically, but, but good and bad we constantly are judging and dividing people up into to groups that we view as good and groups that we view as bad. And, and I think the point here is whether we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, whether we're talking about religious leaders or tax collectors who were traitors to their people or rebels fighting against the Romans or Roman soldiers um, or, or whatever category that you put people in to say those are bad people and these are good people, when you get to the wedding feast, you're going to look around and you're going to see some people that you expect to be there and you're going to be some people that you're shocked to see there. Because God brings people from every category. God, God extends the invitation across all boundaries, all borders, 
what I view as good, what I view as bad doesn't really matter. God invites them all to come into the wedding. And ultimately, the wedding uh, is full of guests. We live in a season and a time where the invitation remains. The, the wedding party has not begun yet. And so the question for you this morning is, have I accepted the invitation? God has extended each one of you sitting in this room. If, 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 if at no other time in your life, right here and now today, through his word, he's extending the invitation to you to say, I want you in the wedding. I want you to come. I want to provide the, the drink. I want to provide the food. I want to provide the entertainment. I want to provide uh, honor to you. You don't have to earn it. All you have to do is accept my invitation. That's what he's saying to us this morning. And the question is, will we accept the invitation? Or will we reject it? Now, there's a surprise ending here, right? The wedding hall is finally full of guests. The party's getting ready to get started. And the invitation was open to everyone, but not everyone is ultimately accepted as a guest. We see in verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So a couple of observations and historical detail here. Number one, um, at this time, some commentators point out that it wasn't uncommon at this time uh, when you were throwing this lavish of a party, this big of a wedding, to actually give your guests wedding garments as a gift as they were coming in. It was kind of the original P. Diddy white party, right? Like everybody is going to be wearing the robes, right? Um, and so if we look at it, you know, our hearts kind of gravitate towards that option because, because like that really resonates with the gospel, right? Like, hey, the way that you come in is you receive a garment that I will give to you and you put on the garment. And so um, that resonates. Other commentators say, hey, the historical evidence on that is uh, maybe not significant enough to say that that's definitely what Jesus was saying. But here's what can we, know, we can know for sure. Uh, the man was speechless when the guy said, hey, why, why don't you have a garment on? First of all, he was singled out, right? So everybody else around him must have been wearing the wedding garments. He couldn't say, like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to be wearing that, right? He walked in and saw everybody wearing their wedding garments, and, and he came in. He didn't have a rationale. He didn't have an explanation. He didn't have an excuse that would be valid. He basically was speechless. He's like, I, I don't have an excuse, right? So the man, it wasn't that the man was misunderstood, that he, was, he, was, he, he had every opportunity to be clothed properly, but, but he, for whatever reason, didn't. Maybe he was there, uh, there just because he heard there was a party. Maybe he was there for the free food, right? Maybe he was there for the dancing, but the fact that he didn't attire himself properly shows that he wasn't there to honor and revere and respect the son and to respect the king, right? If, if he was there to respect the king, you'd be like, hey, am I presentable? Is this what we should wear to, to a wedding? Like, does anybody know what we're supposed to wear? Oh, they're going to give us a garment when we get there? Awesome, right? He didn't care enough about the king or the son to care whether he was attired properly. So it's reasonable to think maybe he just went there for, to see what the crowd was drawn to. And, and honestly, sometimes that's what happens at church, right? People just go, they enjoy the fellowship, they enjoy the free yum-yum donuts downstairs, right? That, um, they, they, enjoy, they enjoy the songs, they, they like the beat, but ultimately they're not in church because of a desire to grow closer to the one that it's all about, right? Their, their, their allegiance to him, his, their relationship with God is not what's drawing them uh, to church. And our hope is that 
the donuts and the music and everything will get people to a place where they're ready to receive the wedding invitation that, that through all that, that they'll come to know and love and appreciate the one that it's all being done for. Whatever the reason, he was, he was ultimately thrown out because he had the wrong garment. So it begs the question, if you're, if you're a smart reader at this point, you're saying, okay, well, what was the garment, right? <laughs> that's probably important to know. I should probably know what that was because that's probably something uh, that I need. And there's a, there's a few places in Scripture that we can look to kind of get some, some, some clues, and they're super tiny on the screen, so I'll read them to you, right? But Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So is the garment, the, the, the righteousness, of, uh, righteousness of Christ that is put upon us. Uh, Colossians 3.12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So is the garment... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love. Revelation 7-9 is, is a picture of the wedding at the end time, so that should probably be a good clue, right? 7-9 uh, says this, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Oh, I did that again. I jumped. Sorry. Yeah, Revelation 7-9. I skipped one, but I'll go back to it. Don't worry. Uh, clothed in white robes. Thank you, palm branches, <laughs> in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces and worshiped before the throne, worshiped God and saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? It's a good tip if you ever get asked that question. I said to him, sir, you know, right? <laughs> like, I'm sure you know the answer. Why don't you tell me, right? He said, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And the one that I skipped are up there, right? Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so scripturally, we're looking at it and we're saying, hey, is, it, is, it, is, is the garment Christ? Is the garment uh, a robe that's been washed in the blood of Jesus? Is, is the, the garment the righteous deeds of the saints? Is the garment humility and love and, and, uh, and forgiveness and, and, and godly character? And I would say, yes. The Bible says we need all of those garments, right? That, that all that should be on. Biblically, we should have all of that on. But, um, but, but it's not an either or. It's, it's a both and. And John Calvin speaks about it in a helpful way, right? He says, there's no point in arguing about the marriage garment, whether it is faith or a holy and godly life, for faith cannot be separated from good works. Good works proceed only from faith. Truly good works are not just outwardly good-looking deeds, but they're things that emanate from a heart of love for the Father and faith that has been placed in him and in him alone. We know scripturally that we are saved by faith, and it's a gift from God, not of our own works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, right? And so it's faith that, is, that puts Christ's righteousness upon us. And if we're wearing the righteous robes of Christ, the only thing that we could possibly do is his works. It's going to lead us to do good things. 
But Jesus doesn't say specifically, the garment is this. And I think part of the reason is because he wants us to take a look in the mirror. He wants us to look into to his word and say, you know how you do when you're going to a nice party and, and you get all dressed up, but the last thing before you walk out the door, what do you do? Take a look in the mirror, right? Like, hey, is my hair in place? <laughs> is, my, is my tie straight? <laughs> is my dress on right? Because we want to make sure that we're attired properly for where we're going. And, and he wants us to be attired properly. And so we keep coming back to the mirror of God's word and we look at it and we say, hey, is there anything that's out of place? I was saved by faith. We know that salvation comes through faith. We can't lose it. It's, it's given to us as a free gift. It's not based on our works, right? Um, but then we move forward and sometimes the things of the world can come in and clutter our thinking. We begin to chase after an idol. Paul talks about the wrestling of the flesh, right? I want to do what's right, but there's a, there's a battle going on with me, the man of flesh and, and, and the man of the spirit, and they're, they're constantly warring. And God wants us to continually say, hey, am I, is my attire right? Lord, is there something that you want to show in me? Is there, is there some idolatry that's entered into my heart where I'm valuing something more than I'm valuing you? Uh, is, there, is, there, is there some way in which my actions aren't flowing out of my faith relationship with you? Am I trusting in anything else for my salvation other than you and you alone. If so, Lord, show me, cleanse me so that I can be right, so that I can be made ready for the wedding. It's like the rich young ruler that, that we, we talked about in here a few weeks ago, right? When he said, he said, hey, what do I lack to get into the kingdom of heaven? And he's like, well, what's the law? And he's like, I've done all that stuff. And he said, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus didn't tell everybody to do that. In fact, I don't, I don't know of anybody else that he told specifically to do that, but he looked at that man and said, here's what's lacking from your wedding garment. You have an idolatry of money, of wealth. You need to let it go. You need to let it go, right? Um, and you need to come and follow me. What's he saying to you? If you were to say, Lord, what do I lack? Do I need to straighten my tie? What, what, is, it, what is it of my garment? He might say, hey, you're not wearing a garment. You need the garment, and that comes through faith in me. It's a gift that I'll give to you. But you have to receive it. He closes the parable saying, many are, are chosen, or many are called, but few are chosen. That word that's used, translated called there, is the same word that's been used throughout this parable is invited, right? So another way to say is, hey, many are invited, um, but not all those that are invited end up being guests at the wedding. Just hearing the invitation doesn't make you a guest. You have to receive the invitation. You have to go. You have to be attired in the righteousness of Christ. But here's the good news. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever the world says about you, what the person next to you says about you, doesn't really matter. You're invited. God wants you. He's excited that you're at the party. When he gets your RSVP, he's high-fiving people. <laughs> he wants you in. So my prayer is that today, if you've never you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you've never had that security of knowing when I die, I will go to heaven and I will be with Jesus, make today the day. RSVP for the wedding.